The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Hey, everybody. Um, as he said, we are in Romans chapter 12. We've been doing that for several weeks. We are going to take uh, the next two weeks to finish chapter 12. We will pick up the pace then, uh, actually quite a bit. So just know we've, we've taken a, our time. We have five verses today in Romans chapter 12, but they come on the tail end of two weeks ago, if you were here. Paul, the author of this book, uh, is writing to a church and he's wanting them to be united. He's wanting them to be one body. And in telling them to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, telling them to make sure and use their spiritual gifts, those are the gifts that God endows his followers with to edify the body, to build up the church, to complete the mission of making disciples for his glory. He, he comes on the tail end of that talk of spiritual gifts and he says, you know what, there's some virtues that as followers of Christ, as Christians, you need to exhibit these virtues. And Today's passage, just in five verses, there's 13 of them. This is legitimately a 13-point message, okay? When you go to preacher college, they tell you never to have a 13-point message because that's too many points, okay? And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, it is. It's too many points. And next week, we're going to have even more, okay? Uh, Paul is kind of just throwing out this beautiful picture of all of these attributes and characteristics that followers of Christ should possess, my strongest encouragement to you, church, is to listen today and ask God to show you one or two of these 13 virtues that you need to work on, that you need to allow the Lord to stir in your heart and your life, and then spend the next two weeks just kind of sitting in the end of chapter 12, like meaning, meaning read it and kind of pray through it and meditate on it because there's just too much. There's too much here. It's a fire hydrant day, Okay. And, and I want you to be able to go and process and pray and let the Lord speak to you. Uh, so, so that's my plea, but we will begin and I'll do my best to get us out of here before three o'clock. So um, Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 13. I'm just gonna read the text and we'll break it back down each of the 13 uh, virtues. Here we go. Verse nine, your love, it's gotta be sincere. You need to hate what is evil, strong words. You need to cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Don't ever be lacking in zeal, but keep up your spiritual fervor, specifically for serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, and last but not least, Practice hospitality. Okay, got all that? We've, we've made it through the list. 13 things that, that Paul says you need to possess. The first one's the most important. Okay, your love must be sincere. Why is that so important? Three times in the New Testament, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and then follows up that conversation with the importance of love. And there's a very, very, very good reason why he does this. Because you can have all the spiritual gifts in the world, mercy, hospitality, all this different stuff. But if you have no love, you can speak in tongues and prophesy and do this, but you have not love. The Bible says you're like just a squeaky door. Love is the most important one. Jesus says that people will know who my disciples are by the way they love one another. Now this love, I think the reason why Paul always reverts to it is because it's one of the key 
instrumental characteristics of those who have accepted the love of Christ. We love because he first loved us. That is the fuel. That is the reason. That is the why. Having not been compelled by the grace of God to see and understand the love that he has for you. If you don't have that, you've got nothing. And Paul wants everyone to know that. You can have a lot of other cool stuff and cool traits. You can have everything on this list, but love, love is the most important one. And you're sincere, that word non-hypocritical love for others is going to be the number one evidence that you have experienced the love that God has for you. It's the fuel. It's the most important thing. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us. He shows it. He puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just say, I love you. He shows it. He demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to die for broken people, for you and for me. And now, before we can ever try and have a sincere love for one another, We've got to know that love of God. We've got to know him and be fueled by that. We see that all throughout scripture. The Bible is very clear. No faking on this one. Okay, God cares more about our heart than our actions. Like It's all in there. He wants us to have been transformed from the inside out by his love and his grace. The outflowing of our hearts should be our love for others as demonstrated by God's love for us where it all begins. It's where it all starts. And Paul's next statement is really just a kind of a good indicator of whether or not our love for others is sincere. It is non-hypocritical. It will be sincere if we hate what is evil. Now, this is not referring just to sin, okay? This is referring to things that are evil and specifically things that would be damaging then to the body, to the church. So damaging in this, like if our love for one another is not evident, then there are going to be things that sneak into this community, to this body, and they are going to produce hardships. They're going to produce troubles and strifes, and those things are evil. And what Paul says is we need to hate that. And I'm going to use this term a little bit throughout the message today. So the beloved, those who are loved by God, need to have this abhorring faith <laughs> towards evil. It, that's the King James, if you're reading the King James Version, it says, abhor what is evil. I, we don't use that term a lot, but boy, it sounds, sounds strong. You need to abhor, you need to hate what is evil. You need to get it out of the community because those who are loved by Christ need to love like Christ and evil just doesn't have a place there. You need to hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. What is good always? It is Jesus. The word there for cling in the Greek means to be glued or tightly sewn together. If I glued these sheets of paper together, they would be like one. Okay? That's the idea. We need to be like that with what is good. Even if you don't have kids, you've seen this before, okay? You've seen this. The child, the two or three-year-old that clings to their parent's leg. You've seen that one? Maybe, maybe you've walked through, not our children's ministry, but a much worse children's ministry that doesn't love and accept children. But like a, and you've got a toddler that's just like, no, no, like don't put me in that room. I'm not going in. You can't do it. There's doing everything they can to stay with what they know is good. What's in there may not be good, but I know this is good. 
And I think that's what Paul's saying is we gotta cling to what is good. We gotta cling to Jesus and we gotta cling to it so tightly. Like we're glued together. Because you know that child, what happens nine times out of 10? That parent moves them into the room. While they're clinging to the parent, they don't even know they're being moved. They're being transported. And they're being set down and they're being told it's good and it's safe. And that's, that's what clinging to what is good will do for us. We're all broken and we're all flawed. And even with the magnificent love of God, there's going to be things that we do that are going to hurt others. But the more that we cling to what is good, that good will move us and will lead us in our relationships. I think what Paul is referring to here in chapter 12 is actually found in Psalm 34, verse 14. It says, turn from what is evil and do good. Cling to what is good. Seek peace between God and between others and pursue all of this. Paul would have known this passage very well. I think it's governing some of his thoughts here. Be sincere in your love. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. And be devoted to one another in love. The word love there in the Greek is Philadelphia. Anyone ever been to the city of brotherly love? City of brotherly love? One person? Good. It's worth a, it's worth a trip. They got a big bell there. Um, anyway, Philadelphia, brotherly love or brotherly kindness. We are to be devoted to kindness towards one another. Why? Because the picture that Paul is painting here is so, so clear. We're family. God the Father. It's children, those who through faith in Christ walk with him. He demonstrates his love for us and we should demonstrate it to others in brotherly kindness and familial affection. We are all brothers and sisters. Now, I'm keenly aware that the picture of family is different for every one of us in this room. Okay, the picture of family is different for everybody. So don't so much think of your family, especially if it's leaving some to be desired, Picture the perfect family where the mommy and the daddy love one another and their kids love each other and they love the mommy and the daddy. And this picture of a family is, is pure and good. Growing up, I had a sister. She's about two and a half years younger than me. We were not kind to one another. Um, weren't horrible. I'd never gotten fight fights, but just not kind. Uh, but as the big brother... If you did something to my sister, watch out. I can be mean to her, but you can't. Because she's my family. She's family. And that means something. And can you picture how different, not different, but how good, I guess, the church, the body would look if we all understood what family should be and lived it out. Don't be mean to them. It's my sister. Standing up for one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, being devoted to one another in brotherly love and kindness. Showing love and kindness to one another, not because they deserve it or have earned it, but because it was shown to you and because they're family. It's a pretty picture. Honor one another above yourselves. I had to sit in this one for a while this week because 
it didn't logically make sense in my mind, okay? There's almost 200 of us in this room. How in the world am I gonna honor each of you above myself, but then like making sure I honor you above everyone else, that the math just didn't work in my head. Like it just didn't seem right. And luckily it doesn't have to work because I was reading the text wrong. The word honor there in the Greek is a command to desire that others receive more honor than yourself. So let that sink in because I wasn't smart enough to really understand this. It's actually a call to humility. It is a genuine and heartfelt desire that you would get more honor than me. That if there were to be honor given, I'm not seeking it for myself. I'm wanting you to have it because you're my family. Because I love you. I'm deferring it so that you, you can get, I desire you to have more honor than me. Can you think of all the selfish ambition that just is immediately squashed if that were to be the church's true desire? I don't want the praise. I want you to get the praise. I don't need the win. I want you to have the win. I desire to honor one another above myself. It's a call to humility. This is a picture of how the church is supposed to function, how we're to love one another because of the love that was shown to us. In verses 11, 12, and 13, if you thought that was quick, in 11, 12, and 13, Paul just starts running. It is a massive run on sentence. The NIV, which is what I'm reading from, adds connecting words like but and and. They're not even in the Greek. Paul is just on a flurry of stuff now. He's just like, oh, and you know, once we got sincere love and hating what is evil and clinging to what is good, here's a lot of other cool thoughts, all right? So a lot of other virtues I need you to have to round out the 13 from this five verse section. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It's a lot of thoughts in one, one half of a run on sentence. That's a lot of thoughts. The word zeal means diligence and haste. What Paul is saying is don't get lazy with the important things. Specifically, loving sincerely, hating what is evil, doing what is good, being devoted to one another in love, honoring others above yourself. Don't get lazy in doing this. It's, it's too important. And oh, there's other things that are very important. Keep your spiritual fervor. The idea is a pot boiling over. Stay hot. Revelation 3, 15, do not become lukewarm, be useful. This idea is that the spirit that lives within you, the Holy Spirit, would be on fire and it would be seen in how you serve the Lord. The result of that fire would be service. I think a lot of times, if you've ever put a pot of water on the stove and forgot about it, what happens about 15 minutes later? You hear it first, right? And you smell it. I don't know how water smells so bad, but it does. Like, oh, that, bo that boiled over. That's the picture. What caused the boiling in the first place? The heat. How do you stop the boiling? Just cut the heat for about half a second. The boiling stops. This spiritual fervor is a call to heat, to the source, to Jesus. Don't get lazy. Stay on fire. Get fired up, church, about serving Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. 
Oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine if a church just became a bunch of boiling pots or like, I can't help it. It's just coming out. I just got to go serve. It'd be pretty. It'd be powerful. It'd be exactly what Jesus desires. The only way to get that boil is with heat. The heat's him. I feel like a lot of times I'm just a pot of water. That's bad. Keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord. You can't manufacture those things. You can't just do better. They start with him, with a relationship, with a desire. Verse 12, be joyful in hope. Be full of joy and full of hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Remember how I told you at the beginning, you may need to go back this week and just kind of reread these and sit in them and pray about them. If you were just going to take one verse, I might think verse 12 would be the one to really take some time with. Because these are huge, huge commands towards virtue. To be full of joy and full of hope. Well, how are we supposed to do that? Well, Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. This hope and this joy that are to be characteristics of those who follow Christ come because of Christ in you. You see, the world offers hope and the world has things that will cause joy but none that compare to Jesus. And we need to understand this because there's going to come times of affliction. The word there is better translated tribulation. When's the last time you're like, I'm just suffering great tribulation right now? We don't say that. But the word, it's like, oh, when do I hit the level of tribulation? That's, that's not petty stuff. That's a big one. That's a big, a big affliction is tribulation. And Paul says you are to endure that or be patient. It's better translated endure because it's active. When I think of patience, it's about sitting there quietly, going through my tribulation. When I think of patience, but the word is endure. You're, you're actively having to walk through it. You're actively having to process it. You're in it. You're feeling it. And that tribulation is real. The joy and the hope the enduring tribulation, I believe, are fueled by our faithfulness in prayer. We have this kind of weird mentality, and, and maybe it's not, maybe it's just me, maybe it's just me, but I know other people like this. We, we have this idea that prayer is powerful, but it is our last resort. Like the wheels have come off, I've done everything that I can do, I've reached out to some friends and gotten their input. And now since I don't have any good solution, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to go ahead and in the middle of this tribulation, finally ask God to come in and be a part of it. The middle of the storm is a terrible time to start praying. Now, 
God will hear you and will move. The reason I say it's terrible is because a faithfulness in prayer will produce hope and joy that will allow you, I believe, to better endure those tribulations. And it will be a natural rhythm of your life that prayer is just what you do. It's not a last resort. It's who you are. It's your connection to that source. Why is it? Why is it that so many Christians see prayer as, this, as a Hail Mary? Why is that? Pray continuously, is what Paul says. Be faithful in prayer. And I believe that so when the storm comes, and it will, You've built your life on a firm foundation. And you'll weather the storm. Be full of hope, full of joy, endure tribulations, and pray. These are virtues and characteristics that should be evident in the life of a follower of Christ, one who has been compelled by the love of God. Verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Translation, the poor. Within the church, there will be those who are poor. You are to engage them. To share, there's huge speculation on this. It's what is the thing that you're sharing? There's some commentators that believe it's not even money, it's your life. Share your life with the poor. Get into the mess. I believe it's both. I believe it's get into the mess. And if you are one who is not poor, you have been given these resources to help those who are in need. That's the economy of the kingdom of God. There's more than enough, but there's not enough for anyone to have more than enough. So we share with those who are in need. That's, I believe, what Paul is calling us to. And as I was reading it this week, I was just like, golly, that's kind of like after verse 12, it's kind of a weak finish, you know? Give to the poor, be hospitable. Like after be faithful in prayer and endure tribulations, like that, that just doesn't feel like a home run finish. But it's really the hands and feet of Jesus, right? If you're going to be all the rest of these things, then um, don't just be in your own tower taking care of you. Get involved in the lives of people who are a little bit messy, who have need. Open up your home. Now, is that to the poor? Am I supposed to bring in the homeless? Eh, I'm not saying that's what the command is. But there's definitely some implication there. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. There should be no brothers or sisters in the family who are in need. I'll say that again. There should be no brothers and sisters in the family who are in need because the other siblings should be taking care of them. Now, you know what's hard for me? I'm rich. Now, compared to some of you, I am rich. And compared to others, I'm not. But I'm rich. I'm rich. I live in a big old house surrounded by other big old houses. The people that I do life with are rich. So I am kind of 
oblivious to the poor. And if you go read the words of Jesus, he wasn't. He was actively pursuing the poor and the needy. And we should do likewise. And I'm not giving you an excuse. I'm just telling you, it's hard because some of us are so dang rich. We have to literally drive miles to go find poor. That's, that's, that makes it hard. But share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Show the love that was shown to you. 13-point sermon. Got through that pretty quick. To respond today, we're going to take communion together. 